0: In 1987, after a number of filmmakers like Oliver Stone, Francis Ford Coppola, and Michael Cimino tackled the tricky topic of the Vietnam War, Stanley Kubrick decided to make his own film on the war and the military hierarchy itself. Full Metal Jacket stands as Stanley Kubrick's most accessible and easily digestible film. Split into two parts, Full Metal Jacket examines the meaning of war and the psyche of soldiers and their higher command why did stanley kubrick want to examine the vietnam war when so many other filmmakers have gone down that road how do the two separate parts of full metal jacket inform each other's themes and why is full metal jacket considered stanley kubrick's most popular film stanley kubrick's full metal jacket is the subject of episode 104 of the AutoraCast.
1: Kiss me goodbye and write me why
0: The Auteur the podcast dedicated to filmmakers, their movies, and film criticism. I'm your host, my name is Rudy Obias.
1: And I'm West Anthony, and I'm a pacifist, so put away the soap. (laughs) Uh,
0: (laughs) Joining us for this episode, that laugh you just heard, he, uh, it comes from the author of the Criterion Reflections blog, and he's also a contributor to CriterionCast.com. David Blakeslee, thank you so much for joining us here on The Auteur
2: I'm very happy that you've asked me to come on and talk about Full Metal Jacket. Thanks.
0: Yes, if you're listening to this podcast for the first time, every few weeks we pick a filmmaker and then discuss and highlight the movies in their catalog chronologically. At the end of the series, we have a retrospective episode where we discuss the filmmakers themselves, and then we try to analyze what makes them an auteur, or at the very least, what makes them worth watching and discussing. In our current series, we're discussing the films of Stanley Kubrick, and this is our episode on his 1987 film, Full Metal Jacket. Wes, do you have a synopsis for us?
1: A bunch of guys are put through the hellish rigors of army training at Paris Island. Some of them will go nuts and kill people, while the others will survive the training and be sent to Vietnam to kill people. What's the difference? Well, some of them are killing grotesque dictatorial monsters dedicated to total dehumanization, while the others are sent to Vietnam.
0: So, uh, this is uh, our episode on Stanley Kubrick's 1987 film, Full Metal Jacket, and it's interesting. I I I asked David to join us here in in our general discussion of Stanley Kubrick because I I I talk to David quite often. I talk to him on Twitter. I I read his work, and it's mostly... Uh, criterion related movies obviously being the author of criterion reflections and uh contributed to criterioncast.com so i always kind of relish when i talk to him about movies that aren't in the criterion collection like namely we just talked about the avengers off Mike, and i i wanted to hear what uh, his thoughts on on this film um stanley kubrick a lot of his some of his films i, I think three three of his films are in the um, criterion collection two of them have spy numbers um his later works are not in the Criterion Collection, and there's the reasons being uh, most likely have to do with, uh, you know, the, the rights. The, the, who owns the rights to distribute these things? Uh, for the most part, it's, it's Warner Brothers. Um, so I would like to ask David Blakesley, what are your thoughts on Stanley Kubrick's 1987 film, Full Metal Jacket?
2: Well, first I'll, I'll give you a small correction. There's actually four Kubrick films in the collection and three spine numbers. There's The Killing, uh, Spartacus, and uh, Paths of Glory. Oh, Paths of
0: Glory. That's right. The, and
2: know. then Killer's Kiss is the bonus yes. feature on The Killing. So that's uh, just to save you all the all the mail that you're going to get from people. That's I said just right there.
1: <laughs> and uh, Melita, Doctor Strangelove, and 2001 were all part of the Criterion Collection on Laserdisc.
2: That is right. So they can uh, claim their criterion status as well, if you want to think big picture criterion. But yeah, well, Stanley Kubrick, I guess just to kind of go back before I talk about Full Metal Jacket, I mean, he, he, he. Goes back way far in my whole cinematic experience. I was a, I think, about a seven year old child seeing 2001 A Space Odyssey on the big screen, pretty close to when it opened theatrically uh, back in 1968. My dad, who was, I think, between jobs at the time, uh, wanted to take his family to see this massive spectacle of of sight and sound and and uh kind of the big mind trip of 1968 so we went to this huge theater and of course i don't remember seeing a lot of movies as a kid but that was one that kind of blew my mind at a young age and i think really forged a bond between me and stanley kubrick uh uh from that point forward so uh 2001 was a pretty pivotal movie for me and got me interested in stanley kubrick as i got a little bit older and understood who was the guy who made that movie with all those cool spaceships and crazy things going on um so full metal jacket yeah i you know remember when it came out i'd seen apocalypse now and and i'd seen platoon and here's here's the next big vietnam movie and it was pretty powerful stuff and uh you know it reinforced all the reasons why I never wanted to follow my dad's footsteps and go into the Marine Corps <laughs> when, I, when I first saw that uh, uh, drill sergeant scene and and the, the boot camp and just, you know, just the absolute dehumanization that they went through. I said, yeah, this was definitely not yeah. for me, you know. I'm
0: sure in 1987, a lot of uh, young men graduating from high school uh, were deterred from going into the service because of, of this movie, Full Metal Jacket
2: well yeah definitely i mean of course and that was when it was a volunteer force and all that but the time that's being depicted guys were drafted in you know what's interesting i guess just to get into the backstory is that there's no context for who these guys are before they get into the military you know all you see them right up front is getting their head shaved sitting in the chair kind of being shorn like sheep being led to the slaughter and that's it you know you hear a little bit oh there's a one guy from texas and and this and that but you you know there's no interest in who are these guys are as human beings what led them to join or enlist uh you know what their thoughts were about you know being drafted if that was the circumstance it's just you're here you're stuck you're screwed deal with it
0: and all their yeah like you said all their identities are kind of uh they've gone away i mean throughout the whole when we do meet these recruits they're just getting their head shaved and so they all pretty much look the same i think we only get a glimpse of what the real names are once in the film, and then the drill sergeant gives them these nicknames, and that's what we know them from now on, whether that be Joker or Tex.
2: Um, Cowboy. Or Cowboy.
0: Uh, West. Anthony, what are your thoughts on uh, Stanley Kubrick's 1987 film, Full Metal Jacket? And I guess when this movie came out in 1987, there already have been big Vietnam movies, like David mentioned, in Apocalypse Now and Platoon. Uh, is this film... As relevant, especially considering in um, the the last film that won Best Picture was um, Platoon, which came out the year
1: prior. Yeah, it's kind of weird because uh, uh, as I had uh, mentioned in an earlier episode when we were talking about Barry Lyndon, uh, Stanley Kubrick was very keen on doing a, a film about Napoleon. And then uh, a rival film about Napoleon called uh, Waterloo, which was uh, produced by Dino De Laurentiis, came out in the early, late 60s, early 70s, and went kablooey at the box office, and Kubrick felt that the public would not be interested in another film about Napoleon, so he shelved his project, and unfortunately, he never realized it. And it's kind of weird when you think that. Just the year before, in 1986, Platoon came out, and it was a big, big hit, and, yeah, it did win uh, uh, Best Picture the, the following year. And then, yeah, before that, you had Apocalypse Now, which is undoubtedly one of the greatest war movies ever made. Uh, it's kind of odd that Kubrick would decide to forge ahead with his own Vietnam project. Uh, the only thing I can think is that you know, he might have felt, well, what I'm doing is not like what everybody else is doing. And in that regard, if assuming that was his thinking at all, he would certainly be correct, because his film is not like any of the other Vietnam films that have come before or since it is very much as with all of his works, a Stanley Kubrick film, which means it's just never going to be like anybody else's uh, cinematic experience. Uh, And you notice that not too many people talk about Platoon anymore these days. As far as uh, Vietnam movies go, you hear about Full Metal Jacket. You definitely hear about Apocalypse Now. I imagine, I think, some people will talk about The Deer Hunter. Uh, I don't because I don't think it's that great. But uh, Platoon, I don't know, for some reason that's kind of faded into the woodwork. We'll definitely uh, talk about it uh, sometime, uh, you know, in in, in the future, but... uh, it's weird that uh, you know, that's that's the one you know that won the uh, Academy Award for Best Picture and that's probably one of the least talked about Vietnam War films. Uh,
0: well, is it because of um, I guess Oliver Stone's stature? I mean, that was like one of the first Oliver. I mean, Oliver Stone kind of came into the limelight with that yeah, it was that was movie. His breakout movie, sure. And he he was did he win director for that year? I mean, he won Best Picture. I know he was also nominated for Salvador that year for screenplay. Um, and it just seems like you, you look at a filmmaker like Oliver Stone, he really hasn't been at the top of his game since like maybe the early nineties. And perhaps because this is the second to last Stanley Kubrick film, this, this film is, is kind of important in that way. I mean, it, this is his shortest film, one of his shortest films. It just comes in under two hours and it's kind of split into these two, two sections or almost three sections. And so it, it stands out that way as well
2: yeah i think you know just to go to platoon for a second i think platoon has such a kind of more single-minded political message to it whereas full metal jacket i mean really you could be all over the political spectrum and find plenty to enjoy in fact i think that's one of the most ingenious aspects of this movie is that you know you could be a complete hawk you know just just a, an action movie guy I mean, you know, it's not an action movie Like today's action movies are But there's a lot of people who would probably Not agree with my politics at all Who think, oh yeah, Full Metal Jacket Now that's a movie for you, you know uh, It's because Kubrick really just Puts the experience out there And doesn't really give you an interpretation Of what it's supposed to mean
1: Yeah, and then yeah. that's something that I've referred to uh, Before, I think a couple, More than a couple of times in, in our discussions with Stanley Kubrick Is that One of the great things about him is that he just presents you with the information in a rather dispassionate manner. He's not necessarily telling you what to think or how to feel. Uh, I'm sure he has pretty specific ideas and I uh, about you know what he is showing you, and I think that you know you can interpret them correctly if you know enough about him and you know enough about the body of his work, but yeah if you 're just a, a an average viewer just walking into the theater and watching it, then whatever you get out of it is whatever you put into it
0: yeah and I, and I think you, your average movie goer can go into this movie in, in full metal jacketing and, and get a lot out of it i mean like like you said david i mean there's Action. There's a there's a good amount of action in this film. It's not like a Michael Bay film or anything like that. But there's a lot of uh, intense battle scenes, and so I guess you can enjoy this film on on that level of of just sheer entertainment. And, and it's a very entertaining movie. I mean, like I said, it's, oh, yeah. it's it's a really short film considering it's Stanley Kubrick, and it goes on a at a really good pace. And it's it's divided into these two parts. And I, I guess as soon as you get bored with one part, there's another part. But I, I can't. See anyone being bored with anything in this film because it just the way he presents it is just so matter-of-factly and i maybe that's why stanley Kubrick kind of gets this we, we talked about this in our um a clockwork orange episode this this cold filmmaker uh label that he gets is because he doesn't present so much emotion he wants you to actually think about what's going on, how these things are related, and how this is going um, to, I guess, what can you bring to this with your uh, life experience?
2: Yeah, yeah, and you put yourself in any one of the characters' roles. I mean, and there's a lot of interesting characters in this movie that you can sort of uh, vicariously be. You know, ba- you know, regardless of your own life experience, you know, mm-hmm. think of yourself as as Joker. Think about yourself as Private Pyle. Think about yourself as as uh, 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 you know Sergeant Hartman and, and and his task and what he's got to do. I mean, and then once you get into once you get into the, the and and all the military action, all the the combat, the stress and the pressure uh there's 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 a great amount of material to mentally engage with but there's also an incredible amount of humor i mean this you know it's not it's not funny like dr Strangelove is funny but there are some pretty uh incredible laughs to be gotten just the absurdity and and the intensity of of the situations and the behaviors and and the lines that are being exchanged I, i think i think kubrick you know made a you know, what could be considered a dark comedy, uh, at least big portions of this film. Yeah. Uh, okay, go ahead, Wes.
1: I think that's one of the more remarkable things about Full Metal Jacket is the way it just turns on a dime from funny to not funny. <laughs> <Yeah>. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's yeah. pretty amazing. It's just sometimes, I mean, in the opening scene, things are just rolling along and you have uh, Lee Ermey in his now legendary performance as Sergeant Hartman, basically just yelling at everybody for five, ten minutes. And it's some of it is it's pretty hilarious in its own way uh and then you get to the part where he's uh you know laying into a private pile uh, played by uh Vincent D'Onofrio in a really just stunning performance and when you get to the end of that scene where Hartman is quite literally choking private pile it it's just not funny anymore and you realize okay well then yeah uh, this is not going to be just a comedic film. It's not going to be yeah, he, just a comedic exercise. There's more going on here, and we got to be on our toes.
2: Yeah, Hartman kind of wipes the grin off of all of our filthy <laughs> faces, you <know? laughs> um, because you're right. And the, and the particular style of humor is just incredibly emasculating. I mean, if if you're a man with any level of testosterone in your system, you're you're. And he's just dressing these guys down. I mean, he's he's going racial. He's going towards your your character, your sexuality, your 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 competence as a human being, and you know we're all sitting on the outside saying oh man it would suck to be that guy but it it is it's it's funny because he's just going for that most vulnerable core of you know what kind of holds us together emotionally or psychically and just ripping it to shreds that's that's the essence of boot camp and and again you know when i first saw it it's like wow is that really what boot camp is like and of course you know years later i found out yeah lee ermy he was a real drill sergeant he was just doing what he did you know he didn't gussy it up for the film Uh, he didn't exaggerate this is just he was going through the routine and the commentary on the blu-ray just talks about you know he took this whole this whole troop of of extras you know the guys who don't have any speaking parts in the film and they worked for like nine months getting all their drills down doing all the moves so that when they snap their head in formation they they, you know an actor can't just do that you've got to go through this you know, weeks and months long process to get that down. And that's exactly what he did. In fact, he wasn't even cast in that role originally. He was a technical advisor. Uh, and Stanley Kubrick just liked what he brought so much and said, hey, let's just put you on camera and do it.
0: Well, it, it seems like why they have to go, obviously, why they have to go through uh, basic training is. Uh, towards the end of that he says you're going to all go to vietnam some of you aren't going to come back some of you are and what he's doing psychologically to them is is tripping them way down like so they can just rely on, on the marines and sooner or later build them back up like and if you look at that in terms of how this this film goes that stanley kubrick is breaking us down uh, uh psychologically while watching this movie so then Later in that sequence, building us up, back up. So when we go to Vietnam, we're, we're kind of almost prepared for it. Think, uh, the, the deaths and, and things that we'll see in that, and the idea of turning these these boys into weapons. It's a it's a idea and theme brought up again and again and again in this film this movie is separated into two halves and so let's talk about the, the first half of this film that takes place uh during boot camp uh on an island uh wes anthony what are your thoughts on the first half of full metal jacket
1: the first half actually is so effective it makes it hard for the second half to live up to those standards because there's just uh there's so much tension uh and there's also so much comedy I- involved there and the uh the characterizations are are very compelling uh despite the fact that you know a lot of these people are basically sort of anonymous uh so to speak although lee ermy more or less carries that first half on his shoulders, and he's more than up to the task. As uh, David pointed out, that he is an actual uh, military uh, veteran; he he knows of whence he screams. So it, it's it, it, there's nothing but authenticity going on whenever that guy is around, and it can't help but elevate uh, the the first half of the film. It, he's so. Compelling to watch. He's so mostly hilarious and also mostly frightening, that uh, you can't take your eyes off him just for fear that he'll sneak up on you or something. Uh, and all of the, uh, the 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 hassles and the the trials that these uh, recruits go through, uh, it's it's weird because I I don't know that much about uh, you know the way the military works, but I, I always thought you know man isn't there some way they can just tap out and say I give up, send me home. <laughs> 'Cause boy, that's that's sure what I would have done, especially if I was private pile, which there's no doubt in my mind I would have been had I been drafted.
0: <laughs> but I, I think yeah. you, you can't leave because it, it it seems like if you leave it's like leaving a job and that's gonna be like a mark on you. Like that you, you've left uh basic training or something like that. I'm not really quite sure how it is, but
2: well, I think what... it's almost like a criminal offense. Like, you know, you're you're gonna get in a way it's really a glorified gang you know like you get beat in and you get beat out of gangs well this is even more brutal in a way because you know if you just quit you're 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 probably going to be court martialed I mean you are subject to military law so just opting out and saying eh, this ain't for me I made a mistake you know
0: yeah, it's yeah, like uh, you are bound by law. You signed a piece of paper. And you have to do at least this. Uh, David, what are your thoughts on the first half of Silver Metal Jacket? Do you feel that it is the better half of the film as opposed to the second half when we get to Vietnam?
2: Well, I'm not sure I'd put it in a better or worse uh, category, but I, it's, it's extremely powerful. I think we'll have to talk about the ending of the first half sort of as its own separate thing because it really is a pretty radical shift from <laughs> – how most basic trainings end up you know uh but it's yeah it's it's extremely compelling i mean it totally engrosses you in what's going to happen to these guys you know obviously joker and, and pile those are the two that we're really the most focused on there's there's some sub themes you know a snowball and and some of the you know some of the, some of the, the the racial stuff and and you know they're they're minor characters but they have their own intrigue but obviously it gets down to pile and joker and especially you know it's on my screen at this very moment that scene where piles really kind of snapped and all of a sudden that that heavy brooding stare comes over him it's it's after it's after the donut uh the jelly donut uh, is discovered in his in his mess kit after he's uh you know uh beaten beaten on with bars or so by his by his uh colleagues because he's basically gotten them in trouble uh you're you're just kind of mesmerized by the 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 fate that awaits these guys, and and again for a first time viewer, you're you know you're thinking wow they're just going to go off to war, and and and, and pile is transformed from this you know flabby incompetent to all of a sudden oh this guy's got an eye he, he's a marksman you know he he can hit the target he can hit the bullseye with deadly accuracy as, as uh, Hardman says I finally found something you're good at you know well kind of fatal almost last words there as it turns. Turns out uh
0: but but do you feel like the the way this the first half ends <laughs> and it ends with uh the um, sergeant hartman the drill instructor getting brutally killed by by pile and it's a very uh very haunting scene it's a very uh, the, the, there's this maybe somewhat stylized because it, it is it is in slow motion which does reflect the end of the film overall um and i this last time I was watching this film in preparation for this episode, I, I was thinking to myself, once we get into Vietnam, wouldn't it have been a good thing to have this guy in battle with you? Uh, or do you think like he would have like turned on everyone and just, you know, just went on a killing rampage no matter what side you're on, the American side or the Vietnamese side? Um, unfortunately, we'll never know. I don't know why that thought <laughs> crossed my mind while watching it this time around. Um,
2: well, I, I, the idea, okay. I guess, is that Pyle's dehumanization maybe went a little too far and that the reassembling didn't quite didn't quite get all the parts in the right place you know uh but that's really psychoanalyzing it a little bit more probably than kubrick intended to so you got to be sort of cautious about boy was there something we could have done to save pile you know or or yeah, could he have been redeemed that that's that's really not the point of the story I, in fact in a way i think if you want to take a little bit more of a contrarian point of view um, it, it was a it was a pretty bold and dramatic way of resolving the you know all the different plot threads of that first half in something pretty gripping and pretty memorable but in a way he sort of escapes the idea of uh you know uh where pile would have gone if he had not snapped, and and uh, and of course Hartman, you know, is he being punished for all of his verbal abuse, uh, his physical mistreatment? Uh, I have a, a younger uh, nephew who went through the military several years ago, and I asked him if you know because he'd seen full metal jacket i said is is your was your boot camp similar he says well all the stuff that they said to me was the same but they can't really hit you the same way that they they used to be able to you know so the choking scene the punch in the guts you know some of that kind of stuff uh even the military has has quote unquote softened up uh in, in how they handle recruits but my dad was a marine and and you know when i was born and he 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 had been hit upside the head with the barrel of a rifle on multiple occasions for just for you know for a wisecracker for not following an order uh, fast enough so uh, some of that physical abuse definitely did happen Uh, whether or not kubrick's trying to make a point (laughs) or not i I, kind of doubt it i think it's just kind of a device to to bring that first half to a very gripping conclusion
0: Uh, i i really do i like the first half a lot there i mean there's a lot of engagement between the audience and what's going on on the screen and especially in this whole practically this whole movie like scene after scene after scene how everything just really just builds to certain points and doesn't really uh let the audience it doesn't give the audience time to rest i mean there's a lot that goes on in this movie and and again this movie is a really 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 short film it's under two two hours it's 116 minutes uh west anthony what are your thoughts on the second half of this film when they actually get to vietnam
1: i like the second half too uh but yeah probably not quite as much as the first half but there's there's a lot more going on in the second half cuz of course naturally you're out of Paris Island and you're in Vietnam or in London or England masquerading as Vietnam that's one of the the most remarkable things about this production is that all of it was made in England so all the the ruins and and the, the battered uh, cities that you see in the second half of the film all that's uh, all that is England and you can uh, you can thank the production designer, Anton Furst, who uh, did not win uh, an Oscar or was even nominated for his efforts, which is a real shame because uh, the the, uh, the look of the film is just absolutely superb when you consider where it's supposed to be and when you consider where it was actually made. Uh, he did actually get something for his efforts a couple of years down the line when he was the production designer for Batman, so that's you know, the Tim Burton's Batman, that is, so that's pretty nice for him, but uh, the, the look, it, particularly in the second half of uh, Full Metal Jacket, really is uh, startling when you consider that it's all in England, because Kubrick would not go more than maybe 50 miles away from his house at, the, at that time, or really the rest of his life. It's, uh, there's more set pieces... There's more characters, you know, characters uh, are introduced that uh, we did not get to see in uh, the first half of the film, such as uh, Animal Mother and uh, Rafter Man, which is a nickname I still don't understand for the life of me, Uh, but... uh, and. and it, there are moments, as with the first half, there are moments that are blackly funny, and then it, again, the, the story will turn on a dime and become uh, startlingly unpleasant. And by the time you get to the uh, the final act of the, the story, there's really almost nothing in the way of humor at all. It basically just goes completely and utterly dark and hopeless and intense and... That's more or less the note that the movie ends on. I mean, you sort of get a little bit of uh, a respite at the very end with the the final shot of the movie. But even that has a a real darkness all its own. When you consider that these guys are marching away from whatever fight they were in and they're all singing the, the, the Mickey Mouse Club theme. Which is, you know, it's it's kind of cute and funny if you're just thinking about it on the surface. Just, you know, watching these guys, these soldiers uh, singing, you know, M I C K Y M O U S E. But then you think a little bit further and, you know, these guys are really not very far removed from the childhood where they first learned that song. Most of those guys, if not all of them, are, you know, they would have been maybe less than a decade removed from when they were kids Sitting in the living room in front of the TV, watching the Mickey Mouse Club, uh, the Mickey Mouse Club show on on television, and now here they are, halfway around the world, killing and being killed in the name of uh, whatever organization uh, slash government slash corporate power told them to be there.
2: Yeah, and, and the audience as well. The, this the audience. <laughs> This audience is, is, you know, also grown up watching Mickey Mouse and, and the whole Disney American Dream message has been kind of sent to them uh, throughout their lives. So it's kind of this cynical, sardonic, grim uh, twisting around of, of the message that, uh, that they've been hearing for all these years. And these are our, our fighting men keeping us free. Uh, it's just kind of a warped vision.
1: And it's also kind of sad. In a way, because, you know, that's the whole thing is that, you know, the first half of the film is designed to show how these guys were broken down as individuals, as human beings, and then built up again. But what they're being built up into is not the same thing that they were when they started. And and yet, when you see this final shot of the film and you hear them singing that song, then it's... It's kind of a weird, sad elegy to the human being that they kind of used to be and a reminder that that human being is still buried somewhere within them. It's it's kind of haunting, really, in a way.
0: Well, it's the thing that I feel that Joker, uh, played by Matthew Modine, is struggling with throughout the entire picture. I mean, he he's going through this basic training at the beginning of the film as well, and he's being broken down and then built up into this killing machine. But then uh, it, it seems like he he's the voice of somewhat of reason, where, uh, where he's not really sure if if the piece of himself that was before he got into the Marines is, is still there I mean it feels like this character is still very thoughtful very smart knows the difference between right and wrong and, and is always wondering like if, if they're doing is the right thing uh, well,
2: he's, uh, he's, a, he's a writer you know so he's, yes. he's there to observe and take notes and sort of interpret the war and I think that's another interesting sort of little sub theme of the second half is you know he's here to be part of the propaganda machine I mean he's, he's a newspaper writer for the Stars and Stripes, which is kind of an in house publication for the military, the soldiers to read just to kind of keep themselves informed of what's going on, but it's always done with a twist of what's gonna encourage troop morale. So It's you know, the
1: military um, version of the company newsletter.
2: Exactly, yeah. But but you know, he's 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 using his creative gifts, but they're being really subverted to this, you know maybe sinister is overstating it but it's it's kind of a manipulative or propagandistic purpose but that's 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 his out that's where he doesn't have to go you know putting his ass in the grass so, to, so as they say and and face heavy combat but then he gets bored with that too yeah and it, it
0: seems well the introduction of of this character, Joker, uh, <laughs> from the moment that we do meet him, or the moment that he does speak, and throughout the whole film, and he, I guess he he's definitely the character that we do follow throughout the whole movie. I mean, there's this this bit of a reverence in him. I mean, he, doing the John Wayne impression at the beginning of this movie, and then he's always questioning uh, the the higher command, but at the same time being very respectful of them. I mean, even towards the the end of the film, when they get into the the big shootout, um, trying to uh, Game capture of, of this small little foothold in, in Vietnam from the sniper. He, he's kind of placed with a moral dilemma: should he or should he not uh, kill the, uh, uh, the the teenage girl who ends up being the sniper? Uh, which is pretty. Uh, the first time I saw this film, I was pretty. Uh, that was a pretty haunting thing to see. Like the the person who was shooting at, at these men um, turned out to be this, this teenage girl. And that was a very like shocking thing to see. And especially the way Stanley Kubrick, the mute, the way the music is when, when it's revealed that it's a teenage girl and then it's in slow motion, how are you supposed to react in that situation?
2: Well, especially considering what was happening to the other teenage girls that we saw in the movie, you know, the the being sold into prostitution and, you know, being pretty complicit. I mean, this is just, they're They're living, and so it's like, boy, there's kind of this kind of karmic turnabout there and and that kind of goes back to Joker's character and he's got born to kill" written on his helmet. He joined the marines to be a killer. that's what he says to the sergeant right at the first, but he's also got the peace sign right there on his lapel. Well, what's up with that?
0: Wes, you bring up a pretty interesting thing when, uh, at the end of this film, when the uh, the, the Marines are marching to uh, the Mickey Mouse uh, Mickey Mouse March, excuse me, and the the idea that they're not so far removed from when they first learned that song, being um, very, being young men themselves, um, I, I I feel like. Me, maybe it's just me, like, perhaps this should have been cast with with a younger cast. I, I, I'm not sure. How old was Matthew Modine when he was uh, doing this movie? And, and um, I'm, I'm pretty sure Adam Baldwin was pretty young in this film uh, as well.
1: Well, yeah, Matthew Modine was probably 27, 28, uh, definitely about 28 at the time the movie was released. So, yeah, ideally it would have been more accurate, I think, if uh, all these people were about Ten years younger than they are in the film. But uh, I imagine Kubrick probably just wanted the best uh, actors that he could get. And maybe he couldn't find actors the young enough who were that good. Or maybe he just didn't want actors uh, any younger. And also... It's Unfortunately, it's part of the thing that we've had in Hollywood for a long time now where, you know, you have people considerably older than the characters that they're playing. It's just uh, in, in some ways it's a Hollywood convention over the, you know, in the past. Maybe not so much these days, but uh, certainly, I mean, you can go way, way back to, uh, you know, reefer madness and you have, you know, 30-something-year-old teenagers uh, getting stoned and committing horrible atrocities because of marijuana. So, yeah, in, in an ideal world, certainly the, the the actors would be younger than the ones we have. But I think the one, the actors that we have are very good.
2: Yeah, and I don't it, really think that gets in the way too much. I, I never really had to suspend my disbelief as far as the characters looking clearly outgrown, you know, for, for their role.
0: Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess that idea uh, that... The, the these killers, these marines are marching at the end of the film to, to the Mickey Mouse uh, march I mean, it, it feels like if they were of that age, if they were 18 through 21, that would be a really disturbing thing to see, especially since we went through this whole movie, seeing them kill people and and then uh, how, how, you know use women, uh, prostitutes. I mean, it's still a pretty haunting thing to see. But I don't know. I think part of me kind of wishes that perhaps the casting should have been a bit younger uh, in, in this movie just to get that full effect.
2: Well, well, I could I could imagine some of our troops over in Iraq and Afghanistan saying. And like the Pokemon theme song, you know, several years ago or even to this day. I mean, these guys are kids. They've grown up in this media age of, of uh, video games and kind of rapid fire shoot 'em ups and virtual reality. And, and, you know, it's when you're under that kind of enormous stress, I mean, literally life or death around every corner, you know, you find pretty, pretty uh, what, what seems like inappropriate <laughs> expressions of humor to the rational mind. But this is how it sort of comes out.
0: Uh, it seems like with this movie full metal jacket it 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 is probably the most accessible of stanley kubrick's work and i think it's probably like this and a clockwork orange are the most popular i feel among general audiences uh people who not yeah definitely uh, of general audiences people who if they don't know stanley kubrick that well i'm sure the only two films that they've seen from stanley kubrick were a clockwork orange and full metal jacket um uh, i guess uh, david Blakesley. i guess where would you place full metal jacket in terms of uh stanley kubrick's whole catalog
2: wow that's that's a pretty great question i'd have to ponder it i think probably 2001 is the one that again i have the deepest farthest back in life bond with um i really love dr strange love again just the the sarcastic humor and and uh uh, the whole you know end of the world dramatics the acting and 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 all that would pretty fantastic i guess i'd probably put full metal jacket somewhere in my top four or five maybe um yeah i would put clockwork below it maybe i'd maybe be, go with the shining and, and full metal is three and four
0: I mean, I, I guess it's it's a pretty hard thing to to place. I mean, if we had to place uh, movies uh, of Stanley Kubrick's catalog, I mean, I, he has so many great ones.
2: Well, and they're also distinctive. I mean, I've got this Stanley Kubrick Blu-ray box set, and and it really makes a you know very deliberate point of saying how each movie is kind of. Uh, sort of a genre unto itself and and that may be a little bit more of a a retrospective categorization of his films but I think it stands stands to scrutiny that he really didn't want to repeat himself you know especially once he came into his own as a filmmaker um, and and had the creative freedom after Spartacus and after Dr. Strangelove to just make whatever he wanted to do Um, he, he really challenged himself I mean probably the biggest pity is that it took him so long between films at the later part of his career that you kind of wish he could have been a little bit more productive just to see what else he could have come up with but maybe he just needed all those years between to to refine his vision uh because i mean you can say i think i think you can say full metal jacket is a is a perfect film or pretty close to it uh just because it's it's so successful at what it does uh and what it sets out to achieve
0: Oh, what was it like? Seven years between *The Shining* and *and Full Metal Jacket*. Twelve yeah. <laughs> years between *Full Metal Jacket* and his last film *Eyes Wide Shut*.
2: Right. Um, uh. Were you guys going to consider AI in this uh, series, or are you just letting that stay in the Spielberg camp?
1: Well, we're gonna uh, we're gonna talk about it in the uh, the retrospective episode okay. because it is one of the projects that Kubrick had on the boards, I mean, he did eventually, you know, let it go, but still it is something that he was pursuing for a long
2: time, and you can see his fingerprints um certain portions of the film pretty clearly
0: and I think w- when we do get to a, a Spielberg series, we're definitely going to have a whole episode to a i we I think yeah we have to have a whole episode devoted to to AI but we're definitely going to talk about um AI um in the retrospective. I haven't seen AI in a very long time, and uh I, I'm going to be interested going into watching it this time around as a as a fully fledged adult. So I, I was a very young young man when I first saw um, AI, and I, I I don't think I liked it as much. Uh, but I I have a feeling I'm going to look at it with very different eyes this time around. Um, it, it's it's interesting that you you bring that up though, like the way Kubrick always uh, felt a need to challenge himself as a filmmaker. How each one of his films is completely different, and uh, as of this recording, Wes Anderson's new movie *Moonrise Kingdom* ha- has just been released in New York and, and LA and other cities uh, in this country. And one of the criticisms that that film gets is that it's the same old Wes Anderson over and over again. I mean, what what's a more valuable thing here than the fact that Wes Anderson keeps making this? practically the same film over and over again or we get uh, a guy like stanley kubrick who's making different films uh but still pretty much thematically the the same thing
2: i kind of think that you know comparing wes anderson and stanley kubrick is uh, (laughs) well it's beyond apples and oranges i mean they're both obviously you know very distinctive uh, singular filmmakers with their own kind of style but i think kubrick uh will will rank well above Wes Anderson in, in the grand scheme of cinematic history well,
1: I think there's um, no doubt that uh, Kubrick was a, a pronounced influence on Wes Anderson
2: mm-hmm.
0: definitely but I just find that interesting like is it a a criticism the fact that he keeps wes anderson keeps ma- ostensibly keeps making the same film over and over and over and over again
2: well if they're good movies i think they that that's what he should be judged on are the movies uh, engaging i mean rudy you and i were talking before we started just about you know I, I see wes anderson's films having a lot of rewatchability just because i i enjoy the visual elements and i enjoy some of the wit and the, you know the one liners and and the characterizations um and, and i think you know we also talked about how wes anderson's last two films fantastic mr fox and moonrise kingdom which which i haven't seen well i'll see it when it opens at the end of june um he's kind of going back to more child-oriented types of films after kind of testing the waters with more adult edgy aggressive types of themes and darjeeling limited and if he can continue making a quality uh, product where he's got the creative freedom to just do his thing and 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 uh you know entertain the audience that that has been drawn to his films and i think he'll be quite successful you know kubrick was was dealing with some some pretty big themes uh he, he just took a, a different approach to uh it wasn't it wasn't so much about quantity or steady output obviously it was about realizing that the the possibilities of this genre and then doing something different with it so you know his horror movie the shining is this very unique among horror films his war movie uh you know full metal jacket it has you know there's a lot of differences between you know the grand opera of apocalypse now or the you know the political kind of sledgehammer between the eyes of platoon or or even the kind of epic grandiosity of, of the deer hunter which is trying to be this massive canvas you know containing all of life or something in it but full metal jacket is just you know it's 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 plunging into uh the the dehumanization of men brought into combat and then what that dehumanization and reassembly produces uh foolhardiness naked aggression you know, on my screen right now is the scene where the the gunner in the helicopter is just basically indiscriminately mowing down peasants. You know, uh, you know, what's a dumb VC, the one who runs? What's a smart VC, you know, the one who stands still? I, I kind of mangled this line, I think, but you know, that's just that's just brutal murder uh, done with full legal cover because you're you're part of the uh, part of the armed services, so you can channel that that savagery and uh, live it out and uh, kind of. Realize the full potential of that part of the, the masculine psyche uh, with with full impunity. Uh, that's that's kind of the the confrontation of the message that that Kubrick is placing in front of his audience. And I think that's where you know the chuckleheads who just sort of see this as a kick ass you know war movie, you know intense action are really missing the point. And you know maybe in some way Kubrick's kind of laughing at them, but gladly taking their dollars if that's what they want to do to support his art.
0: Yeah, I feel that uh, that those uh, those chuckleheads though, like they like these this movie. And I, I, don't get me wrong, I, I knew people in high school and college that were that just love the the, the, the the brutality in Full Metal Jacket, and they probably would watch this movie again and again and again. But I'm sure, like on the fifth time watching this movie, that might click for them. You know, that that idea of uh, how man is presented, how masculinity is presented in this film will probably click for them. And I I think that's kind of the cool thing about this movie is that it's like feeding you the vegetables but at the same time you know he's giving you some some ice cream and candy to play with it um anything else you guys want to talk about with full metal jacket
2: it's just a beautifully made movie yeah um one thing that you know all of Kubrick's films really have in common is just their technical mastery uh, again I'm looking at another scene in the commentary kind of pointed out where you know the it's it's a scene where the troops are just going down the street having a conversation and uh there's There's you know trucks and and heavy equipment rolling by there's a helicopter circling around overhead, and then miles in the distance there's this huge plume of black smoke and the fact that they had to go to incredible lengths to get this authenticity by sending out you know these these huge smoke bombs, like I say miles and miles away, but to give it that whole kind of war zone bombed out look and feel. Assembling all the tanks and, and, and all the, uh, you know, just the, the behind-the-scenes work that goes into making this movie very convincing, very persuasive, uh, very visually uh, dynamic. Uh, you know, if you just appreciate that on purely cinematic terms, just the technical artistry is, it, it's, it's impeccable. So it's, it's great stuff.
1: I'd like to uh, talk about the music a little bit, as I always do. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, there's a, a great selection of songs that were uh, in the uh, the hit parade at the time that the movie is set in, which is uh, mid-late 60s. So, I mean, just starting with the uh, the Johnny Wright song, Hello Vietnam, which is really just ridiculous to me. But uh, And then going through all kinds of really great songs like The Chapel of Love by the Dixie Cups and uh, Woolly Bully by Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs. Uh, we can't forget uh, Nancy Sinatra's These Boots Are Made for Walk-In. And, uh, the legendary, uh, uh, bird by the trash men, which is just, <laughs> it, it, never fails to get a laugh out of the audience when that song just kicks in. Cause it's, it's just one of the great stomping garage band songs of all time and ending with the painted black by the rolling stones, which was not on the soundtrack album at the time. Cause of course, you know, just getting a rolling stone song into a movie was uh, that alone is fantastically expensive. Um, But in addition to all that stuff, there is also some original music composed for the movie. This is the first time in 25 years that some original score has been written for a Stanley Kubrick film. The last one was uh, Lolita back in 1962. Now, you had... You had Laurie Johnson uh, putting together some music for Dr. Strangelove, but that was not original music. It was you know arrangements of uh, uh, Try a Little Tenderness, and When Johnny Comes Marching Home, that was the song that they were using every time they went back to the bomber sequence. And then uh, in Barry Lyndon, uh, there was a lot of classical music which was uh, reorchestrated and re-scored for the film by uh, Leonard Rosenman. And in... Uh, In A Clockwork Orange and The Shining, there was some classical music that was sort of uh, synthesized by uh, first Walter, then Wendy Carlos. Uh, So all of that is not necessarily original music. But in this case, there is original music that was composed for Full Metal Jacket by Abigail Mead, who is not Abigail Mead, but who is, in fact, Vivian Kubrick, the director's daughter. Uh, This is uh, something that... uh, she was uh, working on. She was had some interest in music, and Stanley Kubrick heard some of the stuff that she was working on, and said, uh, "Hey, do some of that in this movie." And so she did. Um, I don't know why she changed her name for the uh, the, the purposes of the the film credit. Maybe she just didn't want it to seem like overt nepotism or something. But uh, the music that uh, she has written for the film is uh, pretty effective. I mean, you mentioned it yourself, Rudy. The the music in the uh Basically, the music in the climactic scenes of both halves of the film, which is more or less the same music, uh, it's it's very effective and eerie, and it uh, complements uh, the scenes very well, I think. So that's, uh, and that's pretty much the last time that I can think... Well, I, I think there was some original music written for Eyes Wide Shut. I'm going to have to go back and take a look at that, but... Uh, yeah, that's original music for Full Metal Jacket. That's the first time Kubrick has done that in a quarter of a century in his career.
0: Man, I, I, I love how <laughs> most all of Stanley Kubrick films are just like... <laughs> The way they started are the as the pretty much this the way they end, you know, and I, I just love how the, these things are just so symmetrical and like in, in terms of like when um, when when Pyle shoots the drill sergeant and then when the the reveal of the the Viet, the Vietnamese uh, sniper, I mean, it's pretty much the same scene, and I, I just. He, oh, I love how Kubrick just keeps doing that. Film after film after film after film. And it's just a, it's such a wonderful thing to see. Um, anything else uh, you guys want to talk about with with Full Metal
1: Jacket? Uh, you know, the uh, the film is currently available on DVD and Blu-ray. But uh, in August, I believe, of this year, coming up in a few months, they are going to be releasing a 25th anniversary uh Blu-ray edition, which I'm not going to buy Because how many times can you ask me to buy The same goddamn thing? Enough is enough <laughs> But uh, they are adding in a new Feature, which is a, a documentary that I Saw on, I believe it was the Sundance channel Called Stanley Kubrick's Boxes Which is uh, Kind of an interesting uh, documentary it's, it's only like, it's less than an hour long So, you know, even that Isn't enough to justify, you know Rebuying this movie But if, uh, if you haven't bought it yet uh, Give it a couple of months and uh, wait for the 25th anniversary edition, and you'll get some some extras there that uh, the rest of us don't have.
0: I wonder if they'll—I I doubt they'll do that, but, like, uh, release a standalone of that documentary. Uh, I, I've never seen it, and I would like to, but I don't want to buy uh, something I already own just to watch the documentary. Nor do um, I. Nor- yeah, I, I, I wonder if they're going to do that. I wonder— how much the the Mickey Mouse march costs to put into this movie? Uh, uh, I'm sure Disney owns the rights to that. And if, if they, like, let that go or greenlit that. Well, the, uh, since,
1: since it's not a, an original recording taken from the TV show, I mean, you're basically just licensing publishing and not actual, uh, an actual recording. And I think that's a lot easier to pull off than actually getting a record from somebody, or you know, an actual pre-recorded song.
0: And I guess especially Disney, and and, and the way that the the song is used in in the movie, uh, I'm just thinking like, will Disney let their brand? let go that dark
2: i guess even yeah i think probably uh kubrick caught disney at kind of a downtime. i mean 87 was a little bit of that kind of you know uh, more vulnerable darker era where disney was not quite as robust uh, and maybe even protective as of their material as they are
0: nowadays. Yeah, they were in the doldrums at that time yeah maybe i'm thinking like stanley kubrick was like screw it i'm stanley kubrick disney will have to f- Fend off me. Uh, let's let's wrap up this episode of, of the Autor cast. Uh, where can we find you online, David Blakesley?
2: Well, my blog is Criterion Reflections at blogspot.com, where I'm in the process of uh, slowly working my way chronologically through all the Criterion Collection films. I'm just getting into 1962. My latest post was on Jules and Jim, and I've got La Jetée by Chris Marker coming up next. I also write a weekly column for the CriterionCast.com website, where i i'm on a journey through the eclipse series looking systematically uh through eclipse films uh, one at a time so those are my two main writing outlets i'm also uh, available on twitter criterion refs uh that's my handle at twitter so come and talk to me
1: wes anthony you can follow me on Twitter at DrWestAnthony. Uh, head over to Facebook.com slash Find our Autorcast Facebook page. Hit the like button and uh, get updates on our, our current episodes and everything that we're doing over there. we have getting more and more people uh, liking the Facebook page every day. I'm uh, very pleased to see that. Let's, uh, let's keep that list growing. And also, you can find me on uh, a recent episode of Battleship Pretension. I joined uh, Tyler Smith and David Bax uh, as a guest on their show. So uh, check that out uh, at a uh, podcast feed near you.
0: And you can follow me on Twitter, twitter.com slash Rudy underscore Obias. That's R-U-D-I-E underscore O-B-I-A-S. Autorcast.com, Shakya.com, and everything that is Rudy at RudyObias.com. What did you think of Full Metal Jacket and the works of Stanley Kubrick? You can send all your feedback to autorecast at gmail.com. Leave us a voicemail at 347-878-3430. And you can also follow us on Twitter, twitter.com slash Autorcast. If you'd like to leave us a review and rating on iTunes, please do so by searching the words Autorcast. And we'll pop right up. On the next episode of the Autorcast, we're going to be discussing Stanley Kubrick's 1999 film, Eyes Wide Shut. Uh, I would like to thank David Blakeslee once again for joining us here on the Autorcast. It's always a pleasure talking movies with you.
2: Had a good Good time. time. Thanks, Thanks Rudy and West, for having me on.
0: So, closing out this episode of the Autorcast
1: In the words of Samuel Fuller, extending the language of film sometimes starts with just trying to show one true thing.
0: Thank you for listening to our show.
1: Goodbye.
2: I see a red door and I want
0: it Never to come back